The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab number 208 for Tuesday, June 23rd, 2009. Greetings, folks. My name is Dave Hamilton. I'm here in Durham, New Hampshire from the Mac Observer with this is Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab. I'm here with John F. Braun. How are you today, John? Are you trying to give people a reason to test? Uh, no, wait. You were at double speed, it sounded like. That's right. Yeah. That's one of the new uh, new uh, 3.0 features. <laughs> it's one of the new iPhone 3.0 so, so features. So people could hear a 4X effect if you if you go back and play that at twice the speed. <laughs> that's that's so right. what you were doing. Did you have too much caffeine? Or are, you, are you just so excited because you, you took a little breather? Uh, yeah, my, my breather was, uh, we'll see by the end of the show if, if delaying a day was the white, the right move or not. My, I had a couple of gigs this weekend. We actually played five hours of music on Friday night and then about three and a half on, on Saturday. And I got very dehydrated and, uh, on Friday night and killed my throat Saturday and I'm still paying for it now, but we shall see. But, but yeah, you know, it's, it's actually interesting. You mentioned iPhone OS three and I don't want to get too deep into the iPhone here, John, but, uh, there was a very important and and pertinent bug in previous iterations of the iPhone firmware that caused our AAC enhanced podcasts to be recognized as videos if you downloaded them directly to the iPod. I can or to the huh. iPhone and the iPod Touch. So anything running iPhone OS, uh, I can say with absolute certainty that I am pleased to announce, and I it is I am certain that I am pleased. I'm also certain that this bug mm. is fixed. So. It's it's like double certainty uh, and, and that the bug is fixed. You can download Mac Geek Gab directly from uh, iTunes into your iPhone over the air and it comes in as an audio file, so, which means very importantly that you can play it without uh, without the screen being on. And that's uh, that's very huh. important. So say hi to Pilot Pete, John. Hi, Pilot Pete. Hi, John. <laughs> Pete, hi, say hi to the listeners. Hi, Dave. Hi, everybody. You're on the ground again. Good, good to be home. Good to be anywhere. It is good to be anywhere. You know, uh, no matter where you no, are, not. you can contact us. And you know how you know how you can do that, John? I have no clue. Okay, well, I just talk. You can you can call on the telephone. Oh, right. In the U.S., so this is plus one two zero six 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 geek, which is John four three three five. And then, or, oh, you, I don't know. I, I, I maybe email us at uh, feedback at macgeekab.com. You didn't just say feedback at macgeekab.com, did you? No, I didn't. Okay, good. Uh, you can also Skype us to MacGeekab, and you can see the show notes at macgeekab.com. And I think with that, it's time to get right into uh, the meat of our show here, which is Kevin's iTunes library uh, tour, if you will. You ready, John? That's Kev- the first uh, we had some other well well yeah yeah we'll come we'll circle back around I, I wrote a bunch yeah. of articles in the last week uh, mostly about the iPhone because that's what was going on yep. and and there's a couple of them we can talk about at the end Kevin writes I have accumulated a rather large approximately 500 gigabyte iTunes library on my G5 Power Mac I currently have the iTunes library on my boot drive and I run a nightly smart clone backup to the other internal disk via Super Duper. I currently have two 1.5 terabyte internal disk drives in my Power Mac. I know I'll be upgrading to an Intel Mac 
within the next year, and I'm trying to figure out how to handle my iTunes library before and during the upgrade. I've considered moving it to another drive other than my boot drive and coming up with different backup strategy, but I've always been reluctant to to relocate the library off of my boot drive. However, to upgrade to a new Mac, I will always need at least one and a half terabyte drives. Questions, and he has four of them. Number one, would you recommend moving the iTunes library off the boot drive? Number two, if so, where would you recommend locating a large iTunes library? Number three, what procedure would you recommend to relocate the iTunes library? And number four, what type of backup strategy would you recommend for the iTunes library? All right, uh, let's start at the top. So, John, your opinions. Would you recommend moving the iTunes library off the boot drive? No. Okay. Excellent. Why not? I would say keep everything. I think it normally expects everything to be in one place. You could certainly modify that setting. I'd stick with what works. So if I can keep everything in one place, I would. Though if the drive's too small, then, you know. So, um, yeah, I'm just going with a tried and true and tested configuration because you, you never know. Every now and then we see some bugs in Apple software and they may not handle uh, non-standard configurations gracefully, nor will other applications that may assume that things are in a certain place. So that's why I say that. Okay. Uh, I, I, I'll, I'll go ahead and happily disagree. Uh, happily? Oh, happily. Well, happily because I haven't had any of the problems that, that you, uh, that you speak of. And I've been using an iTunes library on a separate disc for a long time. And my, my reasons for doing so are very simple. Up until my current Mac, I didn't have enough room on my internal hard drive in my MacBook or MacBook Pro to store my iTunes library. And actually, now I don't think I do either. I've got a 250 gig drive in there with about 100 gigs free. And I'm pretty sure my iTunes library takes about 100 and 175 right now. It's bigger than my 160 gig iPod. So, um. So yeah, Pete, you're you're waving your hand. Man, at a buck a song. That's uh, <laughs> that's oh, a lot. <laughs> well, I ripped my I ripped my oh, entire CD CDs, collection. Right, yeah, yeah. No, no. Actually, uh, if, if you don't mind, if I'd I'd add, I, I actually have uh, two iTunes libraries. One I keep on my hard drive with my most favorite listen to music and and my um, podcasts and those sorts of things. And then all my music that I keep backed up on my Drobo and another library that I can actually go into. And, ah. you know, hold down the option key when you open iTunes to select library. So I can go back yeah. and forth between the libraries. But one I update all the time. And if I were to lose it, not a big deal. The other one I've got backed up on the Drobo and I can go to that when I'm home so. and move my favorites. Okay. Around, so. Now, how, how much data did you say you had, Dave? About 175 gigs in my okay. iTunes library. Because in my case, I'm looking at my iTunes library and I have about 24 gigabytes. Okay. So. Yeah. So we're talking. Uh, so right now, the the machine that that is on now, which is the the where I store most of my or all of my music. Uh, sometimes I'll store podcasts on other machines, but uh, this has a three hundred gig drive internal and then a one terabyte drive for backup. But uh, okay. Again, I uh, so I appreciate your your follow up that that you have not uh, in, uh, you know experienced the disaster. Yeah. By, uh, putting things in in places other than where they they are initially put, which is all in the same volume. So, the, cool. the the only so I, I'll and I'll start to answer, you know, more of Kevin's questions kind of as we're talking here. The, the oh, we had four. Yeah. So, you know, moving on, if, if not in the boot drive, where do you put it? I store mine on an external hard drive again because I use a MacBook Pro as my main machine. It by definition, any other drive is going to be external unless I make severe modifications to the machine, which I have not made. 
with that being said, I have chosen to store mine on an it's I think it's an OWC uh, drive that I bought. It's a, a Firewire bus powered drive so that when I travel, I can take this with me and I don't have to worry about additional connectors and power adapters and all that one cable and the drive. And it's a small little drive and I'm okay. good to go. Uh, so okay. now that's you. Can I talk about me? Or, yeah, go ahead. Or have more. Well, in my case, sir, so the, the machine I have it on is the G5, which, yes, I have to think about upgrading because our pal Snow Leopard's coming along. But anyways, right. so this machine has a 300 gig drive, uh, as I think I mentioned, and then it has a one terabyte. I actually got one of the first uh, Hitachi one terabyte drives. And okay. That's my time machine drive and just the drive where if I'm ripping movies uh, for backup purposes only, of course, um, that's where I would put things because that's the, uh, I call it the one terabyte monster. Every machine I have, whatever the largest drive is, gets called the monster. So, hmm. <laughs> hello. Huh. Okay. Don't you call your drives different I, I name my I name my drives after Miles Davis songs. <laughs> oh, okay. So or at one point I think I had one called Zoot and one called Dingo. You know, oh, yeah. Monty Python. Yeah, sure. References and all that. So but because uh, so I have the, the larger um drive there. So that that that's my configuration. Okay. Okay. So uh, Kevin Kevin's question was if he is gonna move it. And and I think with a large library, I, I'll I'll revisit this a little bit here. I I think it is a good idea to store it elsewhere, even if you have enough room. Uh, you know, you're you're especially with podcasts and stuff. You're pumping a lot of data in and out of there on on sort of a regular basis. And if you're going to listen to music while you're doing other things on your computer, having that regular reading as you're as you're playing music, of course. The computer is regularly reading from the iTunes library, wherever that's stored. By having it on a separate drive, you're not causing your main drive, your system drive, to to constantly be moving data. Now, it's not a lot of data, but but it is. You know, it, it's just separation of of uh, of church and state, if you will. So so again, with a large library, I, I find it I find it valuable. Okay, and actually, I remembered the point I was going to make. So my model is I have two fixed drives. I do not use an external drive because I have the internal drive. I mean, obviously, you can't do that on a MacBook, right? Which I guess is what you said, right? You have a, yes. A, your your music is is stored for the most part on a portable machine, correct? On a desktop. So here, because I have the space, now the only downside is, of course, you know, I can't really take it with me. On the other right. hand, if you disconnect your drive, then your iTunes will get upset, or I guess it just comes up and says, "I can't find a library. It, Please find one for me." Is actually, it, it, it it's it's more elegant than that. So so let's talk. Really? Let's first talk okay. about how. I think that's an important point. If you because I I use the iPod to manage my music that I bring with me. I I don't really rely on it being on the computer. Got it. For the most part, well, at least for music, podcasts. So so I do two different things. So music all stays on the desktop machine. Okay. Podcasts and stuff I'll download on the portable, and depending on the iPod I have, I'll, I'll kind of split things up that way. So one is kind of longer term, one is is more dynamic. But uh, go on. Yeah. Okay. So let, let, let's we'll answer his question about how to relocate the iTunes library, and then we'll talk about how elegant this this actually is, and how inelegant it is at the same time. So the way you relocate your iTunes library is you go into iTunes Preferences Advanced and Right there, you can set the iTunes music folder location. So as long as you have the other drive mounted, uh, you can navigate there using the uh, finder dial or the file dialog. You can 
create a new folder if you want. We're in your destination. Select that, and then you're good to go. You also, in that same screen, want to check copy files to iTunes music folder and keep iTunes music folder organized. That way, any new files that are put in will be stored there. Now, once you do this, it doesn't affect your existing files. It will store new stuff uh, wherever you've chosen here, but existing things will remain where they are unless you can, you perform an operation called a consolidation. And to do this, you go to the file menu in iTunes, go to library and from the library submenu, choose consolidate library. This will now take every bit of music that iTunes knows about and dump it into your iTunes music uh, folder location, wherever you have chosen that to be. It's important that, you know it is copying data there. It is not moving data. So you will now have two copies of your data, but your iTunes library will point to the copy that's in the new drive. Once you've confirmed it's all there, I recommend deleting it off or archiving it or, or something to get it out of its previous location so that you don't get confused. In my case, as you pointed out, John, I, have, I am reliant on an external drive to make things work. When iTunes goes and downloads podcasts, it goes and dumps them into this iTunes music folder into the podcast folder. If that drive is not there, it simply goes into the my home directory music folder, iTunes music folder, which is the default location of all this stuff. Hmm. And it will save them there. And then once I plug that drive in, like if I if I travel without it or if I'm traveling and simply forget to plug it in, once I plug that drive in, all new podcasts go there. So it remembers the location even though that drive uh, hmm. may not have been there when it needed to be, but it won't consolidate unless I tell it consolidate library. And then it will again, copy, not move, copy all of those songs in. So it's, it's fairly elegant to a point, And then it gets a little bit hokey because of, you know, you might wind up with some stuff hmm. on your, uh, in the default location in your home folder, and then some stuff uh, on the, the drive that you've specified. So it okay. does not warn you, which in and of itself, like I said, is both elegant mm. and inelegant because you aren't right. You know, it takes care of it all for you, but you are left with a situation where you might not be sure where things are. So, right. And we touched on this, but mentioned again, if you, if you really want to live the wildlife and choose a different library, every time you start up, you can hold down option when you launch and it'll say either create library, choose library or quit, which, uh, right. That's so. right. So if you're like Pete and you have multiple libraries, that's how you go ahead and, uh, and choose them. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, backup strategy was the final question that Kevin asked. Uh, my feeling, I back mine up as part of my time machine backup, but I've chosen not to back up the podcast folder or the TV shows folder oh. um, because the podcast folder is so dynamic. What would happen on the time machine is because the way time machine works, it keeps old copies of anything that it finds, I would have copies of every podcast I ever downloaded. And I frankly don't, I don't want or eat or need that. If I were to lose everything and have to restore from a backup, well, I can just go redownload most or if not all of those podcasts that, that I need. So, uh, so that's why it, those, those very dynamic folders, I, I don't, uh, I don't back right. up, but the rest right. of it, you I do. do this from the finder. Cause from what I see, you have no. music, no, iTunes, I, and then iTunes music. And then in there is a podcast folder or, or were you uh, right? Well, you, you use the, the time machine uh, system preference pane to, oh, right. to omit you select as well. Correct. Okay. Correct. 
I'm thinking low level. Right. Right. Yeah. You can, you can find it by going exactly into the, wherever you've stored the iTunes music folder and then podcast. And that's what I've omitted on, uh, on my machine. So, but, but so the, so time machine is certainly one way to back it up as long as you manage it. Well, another option that, uh, that would work equally well is using something like super duper where you can tell it to do what they call a smart update. And Kevin alluded to this in, in his current backup strategy for everything that he has. What a smart update does is it essentially clones whatever drive or folder you've told it to back up without copying anything that's already there. So it, it does a, a, repl- a smart replace, if you will, or a smart update based on, on what, uh, what it finds that has changed. So it goes a whole lot oh. faster uh, than incremental. Yes. Yeah. Well, or differential or it's a differential. It's not okay. incremental because it's not saving older versions. Time machine right, is an right. incremental. This is just a clone, but it's not taking the time to actually copy all wow. of the data. It only copies Ooh. the data. That's different. That was a good tangent. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> no, cause I've run into it also, also on my windows machine. And sometimes it'll say, what type of backup full incremental differential and there's like four or five choices, and sometimes it's it's not entirely clear what they mean by all of those. And, and I would think even among backup programs, it depends on whose product you're using. That's right. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. So full would be everything is going to be copied, which is lame. That's just well, but you have to unless do that you the don't first have a lot time. of data. Yeah. Oh, right. absolutely. Then I guess incremental is anything that has a newer timestamp. Right, but but incremental to me implies that you are saving the old version and then just Hmm. making a new backup of everything that has changed. Whereas a differential means you're not saving the old version and updating the, the, the versions that have changed. Hmm. We'll have to think about that. That, That's how, that's how every more, that's how every backup software I've ever used. uh, Okay. Yeah. I don't mess with that a lot. Yeah, I just so. let Time Machine take care of it. You know, it just knows what to do. Sort of. It's not perfect though. <laughs> it's it's sort of wonky. And and I, Time Machine is okay. It it just doesn't give the user a whole lot of control over what it's doing. No, that's how you see. You you don't need the control, man. No, I, I and I appreciate just, that. Just let go, Dave. Right. I appreciate that most <laughs> customers don't. <laughs> I'm just goofing. All right. Are we done with iTunes? You I think so. Okay, who, uh, Douglas? Douglas, let's see what Douglas has to say. Hi, John and Dave. This is Doug calling from Redmond, Washington. And before you ask, no, I don't work for the Borg. <laughs> Anyways, uh, like a few of your recent callers, I'm planning on ripping my collection of vinyl and cassette tapes, uh, especially the rare and cheesy Canadian 80s music, to add to the family iTunes library. I've got the amplifier to Mac to audio hijack pipeline working quite well. But what I am looking for is some software or filter or something to process the recorded audio files that will help remove tape hiss and the pops and snaps from dust and scratches on my old LPs. Even command line tools would be fine as I'm a longtime Unix junkie and already have scripts set up with my favorite lame encoder settings. Hopefully, you or the listeners will have some suggestions. Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Here's where you press pause. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he actually, so, he, he, his message was great. He was gave good. us about five seconds yeah. uh, to to grab that pause button. So I, so I do appreciate that. So to quantify this, Dave, let, let me just start here. I, yeah. I, I, I'm sure you know much more about this than I do, um, being a recording type of guy. And, you know, you, you, 
yell into mics all the time. But anyways, <laughs> <laughs> and set up audio systems. But so one, one type of noise, especially from older, uh, you know, records and tapes and stuff, I'd say would be like, you know, noise at a certain frequency, which at a very basic level, I guess you could use a graphic equalizer or something like that. Say, OK, I don't want sounds that are between these frequencies, like a hiss, which I think is a pretty constant thing. It and that's can probably, be. Or it could not be. Yeah, I think in some cases it could be. Yep. Then you have the things like the pops and the things. And to me, that's a lot, in my mind, potentially more complex because how do you predict that sort of thing? And I don't know if so. But I'm sure you have used tools. So, so just kind of to lead into that a little bit, because I've. I've yeah, I don't really have a lot of old analog audio. <laughs> yeah, no. To tell you the truth, my parents still have a lot of records and I actually oh, got yeah. them a, a, you know, player that would tape to analog, uh, you know, to cassette tape and stuff like that. But I've, I really don't, I mean, I have some old cassette tapes that maybe work in the car, but I, I never even thought of converting them because I bought the CDs afterwards. So I don't even think my current vehicle has a cassette player. No, it doesn't. It definitely doesn't. Anyway. Yeah. So uh, anyway, so, so we're talking filtering sounds and get, getting rid of nastiness, whether it be something, you know, predictable, like a hiss or kind of unpredictable, like pops. And, and, and I guess nothing's perfect. You can never get rid of all of it. But, but what have you done or what do you suggest to, to kind of clean things up? I've used a piece of software from Bias, B-I-A-S, called Sound Soap. And it does exactly what you described. It, in fact, it is built for what doug is looking to do so it will allow you to remove hiss and a hum sometimes you know you'll have a recording Ooh, or 60 a cycle hum, a 60 right? cycle or 50 cycle hum that's right yep depending on what country you're in and uh and it'll also it'll also remove hiss you have to be aware that it's tr going to try and do this intelligently but a lot of times there are audio signals that cross over into the hiss range so as you pull out some of that hiss, uh, sound soap's pretty good. I've, I've actually done some experiments with it. I did some a number of years ago. It's pretty good, but you're, you still lose some of that sparkle, especially from the symbols and, uh, and occasionally the sibilance of a, of a, of a vocal or, or something like that, 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 you know, that sits very high in, in the audio spectrum. The, huh. the audible spectrum, I should say. Well, in general, did consumer, did consumer turntables or cassettes ever really have a, what I guess I'll call it a dynamic range or just a, a range in general where you could get, you know, from whatever the low would be, I don't know, 5,000 to the high, like 15,000. Um, well, the, the human ear goes from, from 20 Hertz to in theory, about 20,000 Hertz. Um, in theory. I've been playing with that at work. I can tell you a bit in a moment. <laughs> yeah. I, well, and I've had a lot of hearing tests over the years, so I, I know exactly where my hearing sits at, at most of the time. Uh, well, I'll tell you, we, we found one. We actually found, so we have a lot of interns, so yep. just a little tangent here. There is a app for the iPod, iPhone and iPod Touch that basically will do a, a Hertz sweep or do frequent. It, it's yep. meant, uh, and it, it's actually meant for training your dog because right. dogs of course, can hear at much higher. And while in theory, I agree with you, the humans at some point in their life can hear up to 20. Yeah. You know, as you get older, uh, you know, 10 is not unusual or below 10. Yeah. But high frequency, because I, I got this app one time and I played it and all of a sudden all the interns were like, dude, what is that? That hurts. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> it, <laughs> and I, all the 30 and 40 somethings, yep. we heard nothing. Honestly, it was just an amazing thing uh, to, to see and just, you know, get a kick out of. I, I can say while we're on this tangent that earplugs work, folks, because when I go into my oh, ear, sure. ear doctor, they are amazed that I've been playing live music for 25 years, playing the drums. 
And I'm one of the few patients in his 30s that can still hear a 20 hertz tone. Well, dude, 20 kilohertz, you're, rather. You're usually, and even being at some of your, you know, where you play in the Mac All-Star Band. Yeah. I mean, you could be talking 100 decibels or more oh, yeah. Absolutely. near some of those huge speakers. And that's oh, yeah. really bad, by the way. And, and you know, another uh, a tangent on a tangent. Whenever I see people either on a train or on public transportation or just in, in public, if I can hear what's coming out of your headphones, dude, you're <laughs> going to be deaf yeah. by the time you're... 20 or something. Yeah. If I can hear it, then it's way, way too loud for you. And I guess, oh yeah, Pete says, and, and yeah, I think this measures on the DB scale. I don't know if jet engines are like 140, 140 whatever. They're, they're really, really loud. Yeah. You don't yeah. stand next yeah. to a jet engine without <laughs> ear protection. Yeah. Yeah. I think the jet engine, I think it is about 140. They say a snare drum will, will hit about 120 if you're two right. feet away from it. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's see knuckleheads, you know, try to be cool too and not wear hearing protection or only wear single hearing protection. Right. Always wear double. And I've still lost hearing, (laughs) even wearing double hearing protection. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, Okay. So, so back to sound soap, it it will, depending on how bad the hiss is on the recording, you may in removing the hiss, lose some of that high end uh, register. Now, as, as we pointed out here though, in our little tangent, some people may not notice that some people may notice it and not care. And other people may totally freak out and say it ruins the music. So it, it is very much a subjective thing. It, it's just like back in the old days. And I'm going to use some terminology that, that a lot of you will, will, will not remember, but, but you know, the whole Dolby and, and DBX thing where on cassette tapes, we were expanding the headroom so that you could get, uh, high-end frequencies better recorded with noise reduction but but again uh some people loved it some people hated it sound soap Mm -hmm. is if you have those pops and crackles and and some of that hiss and some hum sound soap is your best bet so so definitely go check it out it uh it's at bias b-i-a-s dash i-n-c dot com but of course we'll put a link in the show notes so all right time to move to Uh, rochelle huh think so yeah we can do rochelle that's totally fine uh, of course, I have to open up her email because uh, she it. she wrote in. But you got it, too. I got it right in front of me. Hi, John and Dave. Rochelle from Florida. I am one of those PowerBook G4 users whose dream Yay. upgrade computer finally was released with the new MacBook Pro 13-inch, and I'm ready to buy. But being so far behind, I never upgraded from Tiger, and of course, I am not on Intel. I'm reluctant to do my usual method of using the migration assistant to move everything over to the new machine. So if I'm not going to take the easy automated route to an upgrade, how can I selectively move over things such as apps for which I cannot find the CDs or my autocorrect files for word or the preferences for, Oh, just about anything. I don't mean how from a hardware perspective, I mean, how, where do I find all this ephemera? I'm already having a small panic attack about Eudora, whether to attempt to keep using it or find a replacement, not mail or entourage. That's for sure. But I think that's a question for another podcast. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll answer the first one and then we'll see where John and I go with the second one. So, uh, let's talk about what she's doing here. So she's, she's got a PowerBook G4. And this was my dream machine. You know, I got to say, by the way, if I, if I hadn't bought mine about a year ago or a year and a half ago, Mm -hmm. right. You and I got it about the same time. I got a MacBook pro 15 inch. Uh, right. Did we get the 2000 late 2007? No, early, early 2008. Early 2008. Okay. I knew it was around then. So, if I didn't get that, I think I probably would have gotten the MacBook Pro 13 inch because it's a, as we I think we said as close as you're going to get. You know, you to could the sell your factor and all that of PowerBook G4. I did. 
You could sell your MacBook Pro 13 inch and oh. your 15 inch and get a 13 inch, you know. Uh, huh? Just saying. No, no, I'm happy with it. Okay. Uh, I could. I could. Yeah. Um, so, you know, being uh, the, the one thing I'll, I'll toss in one opinion here, being behind. So, so first we're on a Motorola chip or right. IBM chip, whatever you want to call it. So we're on the old architecture. Number two, your two OS is behind. I'm comfortable with using Migration Assistant if you're maybe one OS behind, but not two, because I figure there's uh, there, there's just going to be so much of a delta that something's bound to go wrong. So I, I've always done Migration Assistant uh, with one point version difference. But uh, I guess the other point is that these are, in all likelihood, unless you keep your apps up to date and install universal versions, a lot of these are not going to work that well, or they'll be running under uh, uh, Rosetta, right? Right. So, you know, I, I, I think the migration assistant, it may be an interesting experiment and I guess you're not losing anything by trying it since you can always wipe the target machine if, if everything yeah. is screwed up. But uh, I, you know, I think I would in the interest of geekdom, uh, do it as an experiment, see how well it works. But I, I don't know if I trust it, uh, quite honestly, I would start from scratch. And what do you think? Well, I, I, I actually agree with you. I, I oh, think good. getting a new, <laughs> in this case, the best thing would be to start from scratch, manually migrate the documents, folders, and all that, and then manually reinstall every app. But she does point out that there are apps for which she cannot find the CDs. And unfortunately, one of those things is right. Adobe InDesign. I don't think just copying the app of InDesign from one machine to another is going to work. There's a lot of libraries and application support stuff that that InDesign right. puts out there. So for that reason, I, I would actually recommend using the migration assistant, but with the very open caveat that uh, depending on the version of InDesign, it might be in, you know, not Intel native, which as you pointed out, it comes with its own problems. And you know, uh, well, I guess other than that, that that's really the only thing I, I would trust the migration assistant to to move this stuff to the right places. But uh, but it's going to move more than you probably want, uh, Rochelle. So I, I would if you can find those CDs, I would do that. Otherwise, uh, you know, maybe it maybe if InDesign left behind an installer log somewhere, you could look and see what it put where and then just mm -hmm. manually move that stuff over. FileMaker should be OK. Uh, there is some application support stuff that FileMaker puts out there, but for a, a base install, I don't think you need it. But but for mm -hmm. InDesign, I, I don't think you're going to live without uh, without some of that other stuff. Yeah, so. no, what you could do. Uh, so if you go to your home folder, yep, uh, which has a little house next to it, which is really nice, and you go to library, I would say there are a couple of places you want to look. Now, I think as you pointed out, Dave. Application support is one place where the OS right. will put, uh, where the app will put support files that are uh, of use to it on a, on a regular basis, or sometimes things that multiple apps use may, may be put here. Yep. Um, so you may, if you bring stuff over from there, that may solve some issues. Preferences also, especially like, you know, keys and stuff like that, maybe. You know, once you enter your key once, they may store it encrypted or hashed or whatever in a, in a preference file. So you may get oh, lucky yeah. trying to reproduce all the pieces that you need. Or actually, you could look at like some of the tools we mentioned before. 
app zap or stuff like that you could actually and you know there are other tools i just don't remember off the top of my head but people recommended other tools they'll kind of tell you all the pieces of an app and where they're all scattered about that'd right. be a great way to predict okay well adobe you know cs3 uh photoshop it has stuff here 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 kind of a what's the name of the is it i use this is the database that that your app zapper thing ba- is based on no, no, that, oh, that's that was different. Else. Oh, that's that version updater. That's right. Never mind. Never mind. I ah, forget. Yeah, it was app. Uh, the, there's an app that uh, talks. I use it. Yeah, but no, this uh, this other thing is uh, is separate from that. So uh, app zapper is separate from that. Okay. Okay. So, but it's a yeah. I mean, the, the, you know, it's a lot of work to start from scratch, but. You know, it's not. I, I Well, I, if you got to find the media and do right. the downloads. Now, a lot of times what I'll do here, here's a little tip. If you have extra disk space, like another big whopping drive in your machine, I have I have a couple of folders. I have one called downloads, which is, you know, kind of a system level one. It has a you know special icon in places. But I also have a folder called archive where I'll keep old installers, especially for apps that you download once and then you may not be able to get again if you do a software download. You know, that's right. the kind of other downside of, you know, uh, electronic versus physical, at least physical. If you can find the freaking CD buried in the, the piles of CDs and DVDs that you have all over your office uh, or work area, <laughs> good for you. Yeah. I don't know how organized you are. I'm terrible in that I have stacks with, you know, certain common attributes, either the color or the date or just the whatever. <laughs> we organize by color. I, I actually organize all my CDs by size. So uh, it works pretty well. Well, they're different colors. I know. What are you talking about, man? All right. So anything else on the... On uh, so she the did list? ask, she had, uh, her, her question was, but how, where does she find all this stuff? And so AppZapper actually may be a helpful tool here. If she goes and puts AppZapper on her old machine, and then what you do is you take an app, so you would go into your applications folder, you know, InDesign, and open that up and then drag the app onto AppZapper. What it's going to do before it allows you to remove all the files is it's going to tell you, ah, I found these 16 files that are related to Adobe InDesign. And then the, the button to click is zap and it'll go and remove them. Well, you don't want to remove them. You want to copy them. But at least this is going to kind of allow you to tap into its database of where everything is. So that might actually be helpful. Uh, I don't think App Zapper is free. I think it's about 13 bucks. But uh, but this may, you know, it's it's fairly exhaustive. So it, it, it might tell you everything you need. And, and might get you through this without having to use the migration assistant and copy all the other stuff that you don't want to bring along with it. Right. And there are a couple others. App Cleaner is another app. Yep. Trap. Uh, and Hazel in, in some fashion does this. So, uh, but right. App Cleaner, I think, is a similar freebie with, I think, uh, not quite as many features. Okay. But, uh, it's free. So, okay. Uh, I, and and so mail clients, I I will I will share my opinion, and I know John's going oh. to have a different one here. But oh uh, no, I don't think I will. All right, but Rochelle, so Rochelle says uh, she she's having a panic attack because Eudora, of course, has been end of life, um, and what to do? It's only I, I don't believe it's is it Intel native? I guess it is Intel native now, right? They compile the a universal Ooh. version. No. Okay. I don't think so. Okay. Let me double check. All right. Uh, but it is end of life. So there's good reason. There's many reasons to, to consider moving away from it. Uh, that's one of them. Another is that 
it doesn't render a lot of modern HTML email very well. It's not. I am actually someone who believes that email should be text and text only, but, but that I am definitely in the minority, at least in terms uh, of, you know, looking at all the email I get every day. Most of it comes in HTML and formatted mail. Yeah. Apple's mail app does a fantastic job of managing mail. Uh, it, I was a Eudora user from 19, you know, 89, I think was, was when I first started using it. Uh, I used it for many, many years. Then I spent a brief amount of time with MailSmith and then finally went to Apple Mail. I f have found Apple Mail to be the best mail client I've ever used to manage my email. Um, so, uh, so, so far, Spotlight works very well with it. Archive, you know, searching through archive folders, all that stuff. It, it, it really, it allows me to, and it's, it allows me to manage my mail well and it's extensible. And there's so many, uh, third party extensions and hooks that you can add to it to really make it kind of do everything you want. The, the, the main reason I finally acquiesced and said, oh, I'm just going to use mail is because the client was good enough that it basically shut the market for third party Mac mail apps down completely. And, uh, and it was that that made me decide, okay, you know, all these third party mail developers, instead of writing their own clients it, for the most part, there are a couple out there, but instead of writing their own clients, they went out and now they're writing extensions or hooks for Apple's mail app. And, and that's what made me decide to do that. Um, and it, it, you know, it, it, it's totally, um, totally integrated with the, with the system and, and, that that's worth a lot to me. So your, your opinion, John, um, I still use a uh, Eudora, right? Uh, it is a power PC app. I don't think they were it around to, uh, so, so the version I have, let me just, uh, okay. Let's go to the other machine here. Uh, six, two, four, I believe is the last version. It's power okay. PC. So it's running under Rosetta. Uh, you know, it, it gets tricky launching it because something is weird in it. And then I have to launch it from another app. Oh, but it launches. <laughs> Wow, which is Spamfire, another end-of-life product, but I still use it for spam filtering. So uh, someday I'll just have to get with it. Yeah. Yeah. I know it has a migration tool that'll bring over a Eudora database. So uh, the, yep. the last time I tried that, it didn't turn out that good. So uh, I'll give it another shot. Yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a, an even tougher time getting MailSmith data in. In fact, I had to write my own Apple script, which I published out there, I think, on my Dave the Nerd blog, just in, in case anybody else ever needed it. Nice. So, yeah. um, yeah, get with it and, and bag you, Dora, you know, don't, don't, yeah, <laughs> don't do what I do. <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing that John and I agree on, on something that's, that's so, uh, so, so personal and, and so vital to one's computing life survival. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's good. It must, it must mean that it's right. Yep. But you know, I have had time machine, save me a couple of times because the database and this happens with any mail program i think on occasion especially if you crash or something yeah unless you're doing imap and it's all stored remotely but if any data is stored locally cached or otherwise um you know it, uh, it could get corrupted and i've had that happen but fortunately like i had one case it was a, a few months ago where i launched and all the headers and all the messages were all just kind of scrambled together. And it was like, oh, no, not again. I've had, and I think you've seen that happen a couple times with Eudora. It just gets 
something really bad happens and the data and the indexing info get inter intermingled and it's it's just not pretty yeah so so i'm like uh, go ahead uh, yeah eudora stores all of its mail in mbox format uh, or they have an older toc format which i believe i used where the the contents and the data are in two separate files right right yeah the beauty of the mbox format is that it is 100 percent standard uh yes. and you can you can actually drag mbox files right into mail and it, it takes them now mail used to use the mbox format but then they switched to a format where every message is its own file and they're EMLX files. And the reason that Apple did this was so that each file could be individually represented in a system wide spotlight search. Um, the, the benefit, the, the downside is that you've got, you know, for me, I've got hundreds of thousands of files, you know, littered out in my mail library there. The benefit is each mail message is its own file. So one message is not going to clobber another uh, it, you know, in stored in some database somewhere, it's just, uh, it's just, you know, they're all just individual files. So you're totally good to go. So, yeah. all right. Are we moving on? Oh, to so Mick? what I do. So oh, anyways, so, so what I do is the one time this did happen. Oh, I have time machine. Let me go right. back an hour or the last time you, you back these files up, restore them. Voila. Other than losing a couple of messages because it's pop and it deletes them once it's done. Right. Everything was great. So that's one time where, where you, you don't think about it. You, uh, you know, hopefully it doesn't, you know, hog your machine. So it, it, it crawls. Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just having the, just remembering that I had that ability to restore specific files that were backed up on a, on a fairly regular basis yep. uh, was was awesome. So. And 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 for the record, mails app, uh, Apple's mail app will do that. And in fact, you can invoke Time Machine from inside Mail. Oh, and and restore messages to their mailboxes um, without without having to dig around in the Finder and know where they were actually stored as files. But uh, sweet, yeah, okay. All right, so off to off to, to Mick. No, no, no. Oh, we're going we're going to Mick here. Yeah. Uh, oh, so Mick oh. had written in earlier this week. And asked if there was anything, any app out there or any way of monitoring an application's network bandwidth usage. He wanted to see what apps on his Mac were using bandwidth at any given point in time. Just an app. Yes, an individual application. That's OS right. X doesn't do that, man. It, it, I think that's the whole ball of wax on, on any network tool, right? Right. Either activity monitor or menu meters, that's showing everything the, the whole network that's right and and we know from from talking to uh the folks the, the, the folks the, the the gentleman that develops throttle d that there is no way to limit a given app's bandwidth uh and so i took those two together and wrote mick back and said no you know it doesn't exist and what i didn't realize is he had already written back in further up in the queue and said i found the answer to my question and sure enough from Protomac is an app called Meter. This is P-R-O-T-E-M-A-C dot com. And Meter does exactly what he was looking for. It shows you the amount of bandwidth used by every app on your Mac. And you can even see a graph wow. over time of data received, data sent. Uh, and it, it, I mean, it, there's not much more to say because it does exactly this. So, uh, I, if you're looking for something like that, it's a great little tip. 
and go check out Protomax Meter. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Another you know what kind it does that? Oh, uh, well, yeah, uh, well, a very coarse level network monitor. Have you? Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. Little Snitch has a network monitor component that will show you all the network apps that are running. It'll show a little very crude gauge. So this is no, oh. nowhere near the, the level of detail. But I, I think I clicked on it by accident one day. I'm actually looking at it right now. And the only app it's showing running is Skype. Though I just saw NTPD come up and and blip on and blip off and Twirl is there and Dropbox and Firefox and Safari, AOS Notify. So Little Snitch, I know that's that's something that you really use, uh, though it's something that I use. And uh, it has this. uh, Interesting. Well, that's that's from them. That's one reason to. I think it's from them. Go. That's one reason to have Little Snitch. Um, It's funny that you mentioned Little Snitch because I was about to dive into Hank's comment. Now. Uh, many of you will remember that Hank wrote in several weeks ago and said that he could not get his images to appear inside of mail app. And we and, and in fact, I'm going to read Hank's email because he very eloquently states the problem and the solution. Hank writes to reacquaint you with my inquiry. I did have difficulty with mail, not rendering the graphics within an email with an HTML email. You are to be complimented on your thorough effort to provide an explanation and a solution to the problem. It must be difficult to do a virtual analysis for someone because of the omissions when one reports their problem to you. As one ancient Mac user, I thank you for your efforts. You are indeed the White Knights, a great support to those in need to come to help of the frustrated. Your email and follow up and the comments in MacGeekCab207 are much appreciated. I worked through all the variations that you offered to try in response to the problem. And I finally came upon the culprit. I had installed, drum roll please, Little Snitch as a trial. The rules for Little Snitch prohibited the mail application to go back to the web to grab the graphics for email. So thanks again and blessings for all your efforts. So uh, yet again, Little Snitch causes uh, great amounts of heartache and dismay among Mac users throughout the land. And I highly recommend taking that app and throwing it away as fast as you possibly can can that last no. little that last little bit is my advice uh hank hank's 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 little bit ended with the uh with the blessings yeah all yeah. right so yeah if you want to listen to dave and just make your life more difficult and 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 prone to all sorts of worms and trojans and bugs and just unknown network activity then go ahead Go ahead. Can I can I ask you a question there, there, old old John, old pal? (laughs) How you doing? You doing okay? You having a good show so far? I have a uh, I have a question for you. Um, Go. You've you've run little snitch and and you've dealt with its myriad warnings and and uh, probably been frustrated occasionally by its uh, it 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 stopping some activity that you couldn't figure out why it was being stopped. Uh, but but it is totally worth it because and I'm just looking for an order of magnitude count because it has stopped exactly how many threats that that otherwise would have totally taken over your Mac. Again, order of magnitude one, ten, hundred thousand. Where, where are we? Where are we looking here? Uh, I'd say zero Got because it. I probably wouldn't download that sort of thing because I have a little common sense. OK. And and so the reason you use little snitch then is. I'd like to be aware of the traffic going out of my computer. Okay. I trust that the traffic coming into the computer is managed by the firewall and things like that. But I'd like to know who's talking to who. Now, sometimes okay. apps go crazy and then you give it 
you know, you say, okay, any attempt from this app, you might as well grant it within certain parameters. And it lets you use different levels of granularity. But I like to know, I'm just nosy. I want to know who's trying to talk to the world. Because sometimes you can glean some interesting information by seeing who they're talking to, who their business partners are, who they're using for cloud or edge services, things like that. Okay. I, you I know, find the from information, a, from I find a curiosity, what I learn, yes, from yeah. a curiosity standpoint, I find it more than worth the occasional annoyance where it, it keeps popping up the dialogues. Um, okay. That, I, you know, I actually, I can completely respect and understand your desire and why you continue to run it. it and you're the network not, monitor is kind of cool. You know, you may want to just give it a little spin. That in and of itself, I mean, it shows you all the things, both daemons and, and apps that are running in the background, kind of talking to the world. So so I think it, it gives you at a low level, you know, it gives you the, the, the geek low level perspective, which you may or may not want. And, and a lot of times you don't want that. Right. So here's my issue with Little Snitch. They, the, you know, if you go to their objective development site, so it's obdev.at, uh, they say little snitch and their, their, their tag for their marketing of the product says protect your privacy. So this is the kind of thing that will make the general user want to install it. And I can't blame them for this because of course they want to sell more versions of their product and they're not wrong. They're not lying. It certainly will, if used correctly, allow you to protect your privacy. And John, I'm, I'm sure that's one aspect of, though, as you explained, not the only aspect of why you use it. My big problem with little snitch is someone that's not a fully experienced user will download something like this and then bury it in the background and get and this. And I saw this lots and lots, especially with virus protection on the windows side, you know, you install something like this and then it, it is going to come up and pester you every time an app says, Oh, I want to go talk out on the internet. And of course, you know, you have two buttons, allow and deny, and then some other options that to most users don't make any sense. So everybody gets this force of, you know, it's like a Pavlovian response. As soon as the window comes up, bam, they click allow. And I, I saw it so many times. I'd be working with somebody on their Windows machine. They'd say, oh, yeah, you know, I have this problem and here's what I do. And they sit down and they start showing me. And then the little window comes up from Norton or, you know, some little snitch analog on the on the Windows side. And without even thinking about it, they click allow. And, you know, I got to the point where I used to have to grab people's wrists and say, stop, don't click that button. Think about what we're doing here. And, you know, we'd look and it would say, you know, uh, attempting to go out to, you know, virusserversrus.com or something. And like, mm -hmm. look, don't do that. You know, but it, but it effectively rendered the software useless because it pestered the users so much that they they just clicked allow all the time. And and then don't even think about it. And as Hank said, you know, don't report it when uh, they're reporting problems because it's just this natural course of events. So for most people, I don't recommend it. And for all of my consulting clients, I would disable these sort of warnings for people because because they, they in most cases don't help the average user. But certainly for an advanced user or someone who has some curiosity about what their computer is doing. Then it's great because you if you have the curiosity, you are going to read these warnings and and wow. uh, and learn something. What the hell is a good rant? Thanks, man. Congratulations. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> wow, that was great. So, you know, and yeah, so, so I would say if, if you're a noob, a newbie, no insult intended. Sure. Really? Yeah. The, this tool, because it does express things in terms of servers and ports. And yes, if you don't know what the right server is or the right port is for a service, 
I mean, I know if I see something going out on 80 or 443, I probably know what it's doing. Like the, the, the biggest offender is things that phone home and say, hey, is there a new version of me? Oh, there is. Great. Would you like to download it? And for the most part, those I, le- I let slide because I know that's what they're looking for. Right. If it's anything outside of that, then I dig deeper because uh, there should be no reason, that, uh, at least from what I've seen, other than software updates. Uh, that, that's most of the traffic that I see from this. All the other things are permitted because they're they're expected. So uh, right. Okay, little snitch, love it or hate it. It's it's a tool. It it is a tool. That, and you're you're right. Yeah, like like any tool used properly, it's great. Used well, improperly. Don't say that, Pete. Poor tw- oh no, man, that's a whole can of worms. Okay. FTP. We're not even going to talk about that because it, it it starts easy, but then it gets real nasty. I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, stop John here. We got to pass. Well, but, but you you brought it up, so we. I try not to have single sided conversations appear in the audio for the show. So I will explain what happened here since John brought it up. Pete typed port 21. No big deal with a little smiley face in our Skype chat. Port winky 20 face. port 21 is a winky face. That's right. Port 21 is John uh, mentioned is the port used for file transfers. FTP file transfer protocol, which is an old and mostly almost entirely insecure protocol. So anything going over that these days, there's not a whole lot of use for it uh, in most cases now. So Pete was just joking and saying it it was meant to be an inside joke. Apparently John decided it was good for everybody. Well, no, because with ports, no port 21 is where you start with FTP. But then the problem is Mm -hmm. the ports that are established after that tend to not be predictable. Correct. Should they be? Right. And that's where these tools go nuts. They're like, oh, you want me to open port 49157? I'm like, uh, okay. Or you just say, you know, you, whatever you want to do. Do whatever you want. So, that's right. FTP is still useful. You know, oh, as yeah. Long as you I use it regularly. Security. Yeah, that's right. Because actually there is, is it SFTP? And there's a few enhancements. Or you just right. use HTTPS. Yeah. Mm, yeah, different purposes. Anyway, uh, we got an email from, from Rick and I don't normally read the just plain old thank you emails on the show. We love getting them and often respond directly to them, but it just doesn't make sense to read them on, on the show. Uh, but Rick's email sort of crystallized the vision that uh, that I see for for what we do here. And so I wanted to read it and uh, and and briefly kind of talk through it and then and then we'll move on because Mark has a. A cool thing, too. So Rick writes on a recent Mac Geek Gab, you talked about what happens to your time machine backups when you have a logic board replaced. Last week, my 15-inch MacBook Pro started locking up with graphics issues. I took it in, and they replaced the logic board. Having listened to your discussion, I asked the Genius Bar folks if my time machine backups would be affected. They said, oh, no, we reset the serial number on the new logic board back to that of the original. Should be no problem. Well, they were wrong. I couldn't find the specific episode, but a little Googling found a site with instructions. It requires about four command line operations and careful notation of a couple of Mac addresses. Now Time Machine is happily connected to the original backup database on a portable external drive and all is well. So this is just a thank you for the show. Having that little bit of random knowledge came in quite handy for me today. Next time I'm in the Apple store, I'll let the guys know about at the back about this so that they can help other people in the same situation. So, you know, we go through a lot of geeky stuff here. Uh, I, there are some of you, there are some of you for whom the information is immediately relevant, but for most of you, any, any given thing that we talk about, and this is why we try to get a spread of things in the show, but each individual thing is very likely not relevant to most of you at any given point in time. However, 
my my goal is exactly what happened with Rick. We you know, we go through enough of it geekily, hopefully in a way that keeps you engaged. And then when you do run into at least awake, at least awake, that's right. <laughs> when you do run into an issue like this uh, later on down the road, you, you know, you might remember just like Rick did. Ah, there's a solution. You don't need to remember the details because Google is really, really good for that. But at least knowing conceptually what it is you can do and how it works uh, is is the 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 knowledge that you need to then go search intelligently on Google and solve your problems. So so that that really is you know when I say I'm trying to translate something into human or John and I are going through a, a, a you know a description of how something works. The the real goal is that we get to the nitty gritty, not necessarily to to force everyone to re- remember the nitty gritty. It, it's that that general principle. So, Rick, thank you. Uh, you're quite welcome. I'm glad that this worked. Uh, but uh, but but thank you for crystallizing that, which uh, that which we do here, that which we attempt to do. So. Sweet. I'm actually kind of surprised that the geniuses, I mean, they were on the right track in that these are both two unique pieces of information, Mm -hmm. the serial number and the MAC address. And they can both be potentially reprogrammed on a new piece of hardware. Correct. They just selected the wrong unique (laughs) piece of data. That's right. So so I think they had good intent. Uh, Again, I'm surprised because uh, I thought there was usually a procedure manual. You know, a lot of times, uh, especially if they outsource this to a big, shall we call it service farm, which I think they do for in a lot of cases, they got a document that they look at oh, yeah. and step one, step two, step three, do this, do this, do that. I went through that and it sometimes works in your favor, especially yep. if things are screwed up beyond hope and you want a new machine. They're like, all right, I followed steps one through five. Your machine does not do what I expect. Right. You win a new machine if you have Apple Care. Right. Um, on the other hand, in this case, I don't know if they were in a hurry. Uh, again, it, it kind of surprises me that they, they glossed over this or at least Try well. I guess they couldn't test it because he didn't have the. You know, he should have brought it with him. Hmm. Oh yeah, that yeah, that's true. Bring your. You know, let's try it, guys. Uh oh, uh, doesn't work. That's right. I, I know a lot of my friends that go to the Genius Bar. If if you can arm yourself, you know, short of dragging your desktop with you, <laughs> if you can arm yourself. Uh, though I've I've been known people who lug their iMacs and stuff. Oh yeah. You know, so um yeah yeah bring all the pieces. So so in retro, you know, it's easy to you know twenty twenty hindsight. It's easy. So he he should have brought it along, and then they could have identified it on the spot. Right. But well, and and solved. now That's and awesome. now now we've passed along that advice to somebody else, and and hopefully one of you or more than one of you will use it, and then it becomes you know Rick's story becomes even that much more valuable. So we you know we're trading up on on our information here. Yeah, and we all get good karma and uh yeah. now you know we had some stuff at the beginning of the agenda dave did we want to where, where do you yeah go that's here? actually a good idea so um I, I wrote a couple of articles as i mentioned last week one was an upgrade guide for iphone 3.0 uh the the os that came out and uh, i'm not going to go upgrade through guide in the what you should do before you upgrade to yes 3.0? that's right okay yep it, it, which could, was which was very popular happen? Um, as with any upgrade, things can happen. And and so we went through a pretty detailed list of here's how to set yourself up for success and also protect yourself in the event that things sort of, you know, fall apart. So we did that. We, we then talked about, uh, I I wrote another thing about an upgrade guide for, for getting an availability and pricing guide for the iPhone three GS, uh, which I actually picked one of those up. I got one on Friday and, uh, in a nutshell, it's faster. 
uh, and I love it. Well, the S is for speed. It truly is for speed. It, it's and I and that was one of the other articles I wrote was Jeff <laughs> Jeff Gamet said. I need somebody to write up a first quick look. We've got a big review coming from Bob Levitis later this week, but somebody's got to write up a first quick look. And, you know, he kind of looked at me because he said, you have one and I don't. And so I thought, well, there you go. So now, Dave, there's one controversy that is shake shook the very foundation of the Mac universe, which is, is it G S or G space S. So Apple played a little bit of revisionist history with their, (laughs) with their press releases. Uh, Initially it was three G space S. And then on Monday morning, the, all the press releases were changed to three G S with no space. Really? Yeah. Uh, The rest of the site, if you go to apple.com slash iPhone, at least as of yesterday, which was Monday, uh, it, it, it was still all three G space S there. Uh, but now has been changed to iPhone 3GS with no space. So clearly they were just slowly going through the site. My guess is, you know, we all uh, heard that Steve Jobs came back to work. Yep. I'm, I'm sure that Steve came back to work, saw what they had done on Friday with this 3G space S thing and said, are you people freaking idiots? This is stupid. It won't work for search engines. It looks <laughs> dumb when it's printed in every article that was written about the stupid thing all weekend. Fix it, change it now, and by the way, you're fired. Right, right. You know, so I was gonna say you're all fired. You're all fired. That's right. You can hear my voice here. So you can Steve, hear. Steve is is clearly back at the helm. Steve's yeah, back. Yeah. So, Despite, but but you know, can but, I take a tangent? We're 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 at the hour mark, but go ahead. All right. You know, I, I've seen comments here and there. So so of course there was. Uh, I won't go into great detail because it, it kind of bothers me. Uh, there's been speculation about uh, certain you know, surgical procedures and all that that Steve went through and people are demanding, I need to know, I think I deserve to know what's happening inside his body. And I'm like, you know, back off, man. This is private stuff. I don't think anybody has a right to know that as long as he can execute his abilities. And if he can't, if he has a good team in place, which, you know, Apple's done pretty darn good since Steve took his leave there. Just back off, man. Leave the guy alone. I mean, he's, he's a celebrity, but some things just, the problem was in the way that Apple handled that information from day one. They have. Well, they didn't they handle it. It leaked out from somewhere. And I don't know no. if it was the National Enquirer or what no, was no, going no. on here. No, no, no. Okay, go on. Go on. So back when he had pancreatic cancer. Right. Yes. And then again, when this thing happened back in December where it the was, I, I'm OK, it's hormones. Oh, my God, it's bad. And I got to leave. Uh Apple has always sort of played the the news cycle game. And very carefully tried to skirt around these issues as opposed to either saying we're not going to say anything, which I agree with you. It is his personal information. Now, you know, there is there's shareholder responsibility from the board. Right. But beyond that, it's his personal information. However, Apple has has issued statements and press releases and then you know, a week or less later issued contradictory statements. And as soon as they start playing that game, well, then all of this becomes public knowledge. Okay. Because okay. okay. If they are, I'll be very clear with this. If they are lying, that's bad. That's bad. Right. <laughs> from a journalistic integrity point of view, or just yeah. from a PR point of view. All right. Yeah. Now, now uh, there are varying degrees of yes. 
you know, selective omission where you're not lying, but you're not telling the entire truth, which. Yeah, but there's the leading people that game. There's the leading people to believe things that are that are okay. that are one way and then coming out and saying, oh, actually, right. no, it's it's not that he has, you know, an itch. It's that he has pancreatic cancer. It's like, Whoa. OK, wait a minute. You know, what's going on here? Wait, where's the curtain again? And uh, my guess is the story this weekend that was first published in The Wall Street Journal was leaked to The Wall Street Journal by Apple. Um, as, as the, uh, kind of the way of, of getting the, the, you know, get it, getting the news out that Steve was, was treated. He was, he's fixed and he's back to work because, you know, then on Monday morning, uh, jobs was quoted in a press release that, and that's the first time he was quoted in a press release since before he, he, uh, took his, Hmm. his leave of absence. So, yeah, I think that was a very, very much a scripted move. I I don't think it was a national Enquirer thing at all. Like I said, the wall street journal was the one that broke the story. It was conveniently timed for after uh, the markets closed on Friday night and, uh, and it all came through. So yeah, no, I, I think Apple was very much involved in getting that news out. All right. There was just one, uh, some, some analyst who struck me as kind of a blowhard saying the public, the public needs to know. And it's like, you know, a- Apple dude, created unless, a unless situation. Wanna, uh, yeah, but dude, it's like, dude, all right. So we're going to put you on on an operating table and cut you open and look at your internal organs and just kind of, you know, just because right. we deserve to know that a stock analyst is in the perfect, you know, perfect health. And, and we deserve to know this sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so so I think someone just got uh, their wording really bothered me because there's there's a line that I don't think you should cross as far as someone's personal life versus you know, their contribution to the viability of a company. Unless the two are related. Mm-hmm. And, Unless and there's, but then I got to dig it deeper. I, I don't know if you got a plan in place and I think Steve's got a plan. Oh, I mean, clearly as, as they I have mentioned, a, Dave, clearly they have a plan in place. As I, I mean, mentioned, they, this is rollicking good fun, by the way, but anyways, no, <laughs> he's got an excellent management team in place. Yep, uh, again, absolutely. Been, for, for the last six months or so, they've been, Doing a bang up job. All right. Um, so while I was writing the iPhone uh, 3GS article, I wanted to point out something about why it was faster. Now, uh, Apple doesn't release the specs, but there have been various people taking the phone apart. So who does that? The, is it? I fix it. I uh, fix it. Is it, And they yep. did a disassembly, I think, of the, uh, the, the power bucks, right? They do it of everything. The MacBooks, the yeah. I'm still stuck on that. So but yeah, they do great take aparts and you know picture by picture. So go ahead. Yeah. So there are a couple of key pieces of hardware that changed in the iPhone. Uh, one is the processor now runs at 600 megahertz instead of 412 in the original, and then the other is that they doubled the RAM from 128 meg to 256 megs. And I'm not going to go through memory the the whole memory management on the iPhone here, but I did write an article about it. If you're interested. In, and and anyone who uses an iPhone uh, should be interested in knowing how memory is managed, especially by applications on the phone, because it will help you to understand why doubling the memory actually makes the phone faster. And also mm-hmm. what app developers have to go through. It, it's not dis not dissimilar to when app developers were writing apps for the older Macs and uh, you know, back, back in the eighties. So, because there's, because there's a very small amount of Ram uh, 
available on this thing. So I, we'll put a link to that article, mm-hmm. but uh, but that's... Now, did you touch on terms, uh, if it's even relevant in the Mac universe, like stack and heap and... No, no, I didn't get that deep. space and system... Okay. No, no. Because that's a level that one could get to. So, yeah, uh, no, this is just how, how apps need to respond to low okay. memory conditions and warnings from the operating system. And, and basically right. that, you know, the phone rules all and apps need to get the heck out of the way of the phone otherwise they're going to be forced and, quit well also you can't cheat no apple will not let you cheat well That's no right. in that you pointed out earlier uh, in our pre-show you don't have a disc you can't swap baby there there there, there is no well swap. like like any That's any right. handheld any any smartphone or, right. or handheld device yeah right. you uh that you have you have a fixed purged. amount of ram and that's it that's right all right. Yep. Uh, wow. iPhoneAlley.com is Michael Johnston's home. Michael has been doing a bang-up job, especially these last couple of shows. They just seem to be rolling right out. Yep. He does the AAC conversion for us. Uh, Cashfly.com is our host for all the audio and media files here. So they're the ones that provide the bandwidth to get us all this data to you. The Podcast Marketplace, A2 Desktop Speakers from Audio Engine, BB Edit from Barebone Software, PDF Pen from Smile on My Mac, and Notebook from Circus Ponies all through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. Right. Now, I take some other things, uh, you know, just for the fun of it, if you're really bored. um, There's this thing called Twitter, and I am John F. Braun. Dave is Dave Hamilton. Pilot Pete is Pilot Pete. The podcast, which Dave and I think kind of jointly tweet on that is mac geek gab and then of course i guess there's the main all-seeing all-knowing mac observer <laughs> twitter feed yes yep absolutely uh that's it we're out of here really wow yeah well it's been a long show actually yeah you made it man you i know my voice made Did it you have water or your tea or your i had both or? i know just tea and water tonight so excellent that does it man yeah i'm sure i'll be shot in about 20 minutes but uh but for now it's good Thanks for subscribing, folks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for contributing. But the thing we really got to thank you all for is making sure that none of you get caught. Made up.